0: Welcome to another episode of the Bonsai Stuff Podcast. As always, it's me, Scott Martin, from Bonsai Matu in sunny old Melbourne, Victoria. It's uh, mid-May 2021, and today I've got a bit of a uh, bit of a surprise and a bit of a treat for everybody. Uh, today I'm going to be interviewing Jared Bailey from Montane Bonsai. Yeah, a bit of background on Jared. He's uh, one of the nicest blokes you'll ever meet. In the world of bonsai let alone bonsai in australia he's very talented very knowledgeable on on native species and he's developing and and uh, growing quite a reputation and collection of, of native species down in tasmania down near hobart so i would strongly suggest you have a good listen to what he's got to say and also if you get the chance reach out and get in touch with him because um it may be uh, maybe something that you you want to do if you want to extend your bonsai collection into the native realm, especially some of the uh, some of the brilliant stock they've got down in down in Tasmania. So I hope you enjoy this interview. It's the first one we've done on on bonsai stuff. I've actually just recorded it and really enjoyed it. So hope you guys get as much out of it as what what I do. So sit back, relax, grab yourself a nice coffee cold beer, whatever it is, get your tweezers and your scissors out, start working on your trees and, uh, and enjoy this one. All right, so now we've got, um, we've got a special guest on the, the Bonsai Stuff podcast. Jared Bailey is joining us down in Tasmania. So I'm in Melbourne, Victoria. He's in Tasmania and thanks to, um, thanks to the help of some, some great technology we're able to have a bit of a chat, and um, I'm, I thought I'd bring a bit of a, another another aspect or another another opinion, I suppose, to to how bonsai should be should be managed or looked after. So, Jared, um, welcome, mate, Montane Bonsai down in Tasmania. Just um, maybe tell us a little bit about yourself.
1: Yeah, thanks for thanks for having me on your podcast, Scott. It's good to good to catch up with you and have a have a chat. Um, so. I'm down here in in Tasmania, uh, just outside of of Hobart in Collinsville, um, and I run sort of a small uh, nursery on the northern slopes of Mount Wellington, um, specialising primarily in Tasmanian native plants, um, yeah with a small selection of of other exotics as well now um, but yeah we're, we're predominantly focused on on Tasmanian native plants here. Beautiful. So just a little bit about yourself, I suppose,
0: like, you know, how long you've been into bonsai, what got you interested, all that. Just a bit of background for, for everyone.
1: Yeah, sure. So um started bonsai uh, when I saw a collection come into my neighbor's yard. So it was sort of um, an estate sale um, where the bonsai had uh, changed hands and all of a sudden there was a collection sitting on the neighbour's uh, back veranda. So I went over one day and um, you know, it's the sort of typical northern New South Wales species. Um, you know, a lot of ficus, um, a few lily pillies, Um yep. yeah, bits and pieces like that, and that sort of picked my interest. So um, convinced mum and dad to um, buy me a little ficus bonsai of my own. Just um, still ticking along. Nice. Uh, yeah, it's still alive up at the, up at the up at the family home. It's yep. one of the bonsai I've I've kept from the early days. Um, but yeah, then just like you know, I. I I remember I didn't really know much about bonsai. Um, so the um, educational side of thing was self-directed to begin with. Was that through, from?
0: Was that like the rest of us, through books and magazines and that sort of stuff?
1: Yeah, a little bit. Um, so books at the local library. Um, mm-hmm. But also um, I did join a club eventually, but uh, initially it was uh, early, early bonsai forums, so uh, Bonsai Web, IBC, um bonsai talk. Um and then eventually I was bonsai when that came onto the scene.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um so that was originally, you know, um my initial uh access to information was was through those those forums. Um how did, you find, how did you find that minefield of information? <laughs> yeah it's hard to navigate but um <laughs> a lot of trial and error, a lot of misinformation at times. Um yeah. but often you know you, you come to learn, and it's something I've heard you say a lot. Is you know, you look at people's trees. You know, um, that's the the truth is in the truth is in the trees. You know, um, so sooner or later you start to see um, trends of quality coming from certain people, and then um, you look to them for for information of, of substance. I, I found um, definitely, yeah, yeah. No.
0: yeah, So, so there must have been something which switched your sort of learning that way to to making it more. Um... Uh, more, more succinct, I suppose, in, in how you want to learn and, and you made a decision. What, what was the
1: catalyst for that? Um, so I guess, yeah, joining the local club is a huge catalyst in, in, you know, in hands-on learning. There's only so much mm-hmm. you can learn uh, through books and um, you know, online or all that sort of thing. So I met Barrington and, and Elaine Chee, um at the Summerland Bonsai Society in Lismore. Um, and the quality of their trees was, you know, was exceptionally good. Um, and so, um, yeah, Barrington and Elaine invited me around, and I, I visited their garden, and you know, they taught me how to repot correctly, you know, all the basics. And I remember Barrington said to me one time, um, you know, you got to get your priorities get your priorities straight, you know, because I was a young man and you know, doing all the things like playing football and that sort of stuff. And um, you know, so that was, you know, that sort of indicated to me that there's a more serious side to this. Um, yeah, so, and then I went on to do, um, you know, visit the AABC and, and had some of the, the travelling tutors um, and, you know, to get some overseas insight was quite interesting and learn a few different techniques from them. Yep. So when
0: um, when did you make the decision to, to head overseas and study? Do you want to go into that a little bit?
1: Yeah, sure. Um, so... Uh, I went to university and studied like a, a degree in marine science and that was how I ended up in, in Tasmania, um, after I finished university, um, you know, I'd been around a few different areas, you know, there's Ballina, then down to, down to Coffs Harbour, the National Marine Science Centre down there, I was working with New South Wales Fisheries on an internship and then went to Tasmania, um, working with the, um, salmon farming industry down there doing fish health auditing, um. And I was working out of the southern, one of the southernmost ports down there, Dover, um, or down here rather. Um, yeah. So I did that for sort of three years, um, and decided that wasn't for me. Um, (laughs) and so I thought, well, what other skills do I have? You know, I'm sort of abandoning this career path. Um, and I had always wanted to, you know, do something more serious with bonsai. You know, I did initially, you know, think, you know, in those younger days when people were asking me, what do you want to do? Um, I was like thinking maybe it would be nice to go to Japan and do an apprenticeship, but that never came to fruition. So, yeah, once once I decided I was ready to wrap up working working out on the ocean every day, um, I needed a tree change essentially. <laughs> and <laughs> I was it. you know, I had the collections that had already, you know, accumulated over a few years while I'd been here. So, and, and yeah, I just decided maybe I'll take it a bit more seriously and try and forge a career path out of it
0: so what did you choose what you studied you want to go into your study overseas what you who you chose and and how you came to that decision
1: yeah yeah so um yeah after i decided i'd had enough working out on the ocean um we decided we'd like to go to america and at the time there was a lot of a lot of media coming out of sort of that um pacific northwest area um Mm -hmm. you know um and I found it interesting because they were creating, creating a lot of new trees from, you know, raw material, either whether it was field-grown or collected trees. Um, so, you know, we went on a bit of a grand tree tour essentially up the, yeah. the west coast, visited the sequoias, um, went to Yosemite, um, out to the Bristol Cones, came over Carson's Pass, saw all the, giant, um, the really old Sierra junipers up there. Um, eventually ended up in Portland. Um, yeah, and I sort of reached out to both Michael Hagedorn and Ryan Neal. Um, so there's three artists in the area that, whose work I'd been sort of, um, studying quite closely, Michael Hagedorn, Ryan Neal, and Dan Robinson as well. Um, and so I thought, well, I'll, I'll go and visit each of these gardens. And at the time I really was essentially fishing around for someone to learn, some more in-depth knowledge about about bonsai from um and so each of them i I contacted them when i got to um me and my partner hannah were traveling together and we pulled up in a hostel uh, in portland and portland's a great city um so that was pretty fun we spent a bit of time you know cruising around portland and and seeing sites um but we were waiting waiting to hear back (laughs) essentially from these nurseries to see if we could go and visit them and um michael got back to me and said you know yeah in a week's time you can can come and visit and it was a similar scenario with with ryan so uh we drove out to um mount hood <laughs> camped out on the slopes of of mount hood for you know a couple of nights and then we went out to the paint hills and find and then we went and visited some some hot springs in the area and you know, just did a few touristy things to kill yep. kill some time got back to michael's garden it was the i think that was the first garden we visited um yeah i'm just just blown away by the quality and after spending a lot of time you know visiting forests in the area i could really see the influence in particular of tall forests on on michael's work um you know especially coming into the into the garden that the big hemlock clump there yep. which is a it's quite a massive piece um i imagine if you've seen a photo of it very well um, known yeah a lot of people have seen that yeah so that that piece you know that blew me away as an entry piece, and. Um, I really clicked well with Michael, um, Mm -hmm. I found, um, but it was just almost fortuitous that he had one of the seasonal classes coming up. Um, when I asked him, I was asking him about sort of, uh, potential for further education with him. And so he had one of the seasonals coming up. Um, and yeah, so I signed up for just to do a single one-off seasonal with Michael. Um, and, you know, I met, um, met a few of the other people that were sort of around the garden at the time. And I, I found that they were all really, really interesting people. People like, um, Matt real was there at the time and Tyler Sherrod. Mm-hmm. So I got to meet them and, and have a sit down and have a beer with them one night, which was great. Um, but then I went out to Ryan's garden and again, like this crazy quality of trees, you know, really good trees. Um, and that was, I met Hugh there actually oh, right. I I met Hugh for the first time. Yep. Um, yeah, and, and Ryan's garden was great too and the amount of work, you know, I would have been really happy to have, have studied there um, as well. Um, but, yeah, when I went back and did the seasonal with, with Michael, um, just found that his style of educating really suited my style of learning. You connected um, with it, yeah. Yeah, and um, I really liked the garden and I really liked the trees he was creating as well. Um, you know, you could see a clear Japanese influence um, you know from the long-term period he'd spent studying with Shinji Suzuki, um, but there was also a creativity to the work um, and a playfulness which I really enjoyed. Um, mm. Yeah, so yeah, he's definitely got a playfulness to him. I think
0: that's a, that's the perfect word to describe. I don't know him personally, but but from reading his his blogs and, and seeing seeing what he's done, he's he's definitely got a a great sense of humour.
1: Yeah, yeah, and so I really enjoyed that. You know, like um, I think I would have struggled. Going to Japan potentially with that sort of really hierarchical um, model of study, um, yep. I found Michael to be really approachable. And mm-hmm. I really liked if I had a question I could ask, um, even if it was something that might not have been you know, not the, you know, the most intelligent question, it was never scoffed at, you know. Like, yeah. um, yeah, so how long, you know. how long were you there for? How long did you end up staying for? Uh, so on that trip, that was the first trip over that was just, I, you know, I just did one of the three day seasonals and then yep. I came back for a further three months of study. Um, mm-hmm. I was supposed to stay on with Michael for, you know, a full apprenticeship, which was what, what we'd sort of agreed on initially, um. But yeah, life back home sort of changed,
0: you know. Yeah, um, life back home definitely has a, has an influence on these things. These long term apprenticeships they they sound great and they they feel great at the time, but they can definitely have a um have a have a draw on you too with you know with your your personal life and things things outside of the, the bonsai world. Yeah.
1: So, I mean, I imagine you understand you personally and I pretty much like. A few weeks. No, it was like two weeks before I went over to America to start the apprenticeship. Me and Hannah got married. You know, so we didn't get to You're go on that. I
0: mean, here's your honeymoon. I'm going to leave you now.
1: Yeah, we didn't even get to. We said, you know, that's still a point uh, of <laughs> contention. You know, um, but um, yeah, no, she was. She's always been really supportive of of my you know journey with bonsai. Um, I think she,
0: that's you know, that's. The, if you look at anyone who's who's successful in bonsai anywhere around the world, and I think there's always always someone behind them that um that's their rock that that sort of supports yeah. them you know that that's very common
1: yeah um so yeah and because hannah needed someone to live um while i was away we like we bought this little house in tasmania that <laughs> turns out needed a huge amount of work but, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um yeah so between <laughs> between that and that, and then heading off yeah so
0: so how did, it, how did it end? Like, was it was it amicable at the end when you sort of, he would have understood your, your circumstances, personal circumstances and the need to sort of put the apprenticeship on and pause and, and head back home?
1: Yeah, yeah. So it's still like, you know, it's still an open agreement if I, if I want to go back. Um, me and Michael have discussed that too and I would, I would like to return because um, there's still definitely more I can learn yep. from working with Michael. Um, yeah, no, it was amicable. Uh, in fact, you know, I left with the intention of coming back but then when mm. I got home, um, yeah, just realised can't go back. <laughs> yeah, so um, so you
0: get back, so you come back. You you leave, you leave. You're freshly married. You've bought a new property. You've you've been overseas. You've had training. You you get, get homesick. You come home. What changed in your bonsai like from there? Like what was your did your focus? Obviously you've, you've you've worked up and you've started your own nursery now, and um, you're doing your own your own thing, which is great, which we'll keep talking about. But did, what what changed in your mindset and in how you looked after your trees coming back from from staying with Michael?
1: Uh, it, it changed everything. You know, um, you would have found when you went to Japan, like it just yeah. you learn more in that period of time yep. than you know three or four years of of self led mm. study. Um, so you know, just time management and, like, you know, um, the, f- the fertilising regimes, you know, the pest management. Um, and for me, like, it was a- an eye-opener to see how to run a nursery um, on a commercial scale but also in a temperate climate, which I was new to because I grew up in a sort of a subtropical climate. Um, mm. so, yeah, so but one of the things that was difficult for me studying abroad was that – before I left, even, my focus was on growing Australian native plants for bonsai, specifically Tasmanian native plants, and that came about after meeting Will Fletcher. Um, and For anyone that's ever been to Will's garden, you walk in there and there's, there's no exotics. It's all pretty much exclusively Tasmanian native plants and almost exclusively with the exception of a few collected trees all being grown from seed or cutting. Mm. You know, it's, it's a monumental body of work um, and has a different feeling than anything I'd ever experienced um, And because when I was working out on the ocean, like every weekend I could get away, I would go to the mountains. And the the mountains of Tasmania are stunningly beautiful, you know. Um, The the plant species here, you know, you go into the mountains and it is essentially like um, a Japanese garden in a way. Um, It almost looks like someone's been tending it. It's beautifully manicured, almost niwaki, Mm. you know, and and pools like tarns and stone. Yeah, so I really wanted to explore that avenue um and because not many people have worked with these species it's you know a lot of the skills are transferable you know if you can find a similar similar species that has a long-standing history in bonsai culture you can transfer some of that skill set across to these plants but i also uh, there's a lot of the plant species that no one had ever really worked with before so um needed to spend time you know, exploring those trees in in the flesh to really work out, you know, seasonally how to work with them.
0: Yep. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. There's a lot of work that has to go into the background for all the species that we work with. When we when we talk about the exotics, it's just someone else has done the hard work. When you talk about the natives, and you know, a lot of that hard work relies on people people like yourself who who are groundbreakers in in that space and and then transfer that information onto to the rest of the community.
1: Yeah. Yeah, but it is it is that exotic backbone, that traditional, you know, all that technique that it's totally transferable, you know, mm. all the technical ability, wiring, bending, all that sort of stuff. And a lot of the horticulture It's more the sort of like the small tidbits, you know, the, you know, when to, when to prune, yes. when to, you know, all that sort of stuff. But I mean, um, if you look at the phylogenetics of trees, often you can come back along like the lineage. Um, so things like the athrotaxis is not dissimilar to, you know, a, a redwood in America. They sort of come from the same, um, so the caprassi or, or juniper. So, you know, you can, apply, you can apply the techniques that, you know, have traditionally, you know, been developed to those species um, quite readily really. Um, and then there's just little, little tweaks that you can make um, mm. to get a better outcome.
0: So you talked about you talked about your your local area and the mountains and that sort of stuff. Is is that where you primarily you get your inspiration from? Like you know you you do a lot of bush bushwalking and hiking and stuff like that, and and you go to some beautiful places. Like if, you know, if anyone wants wants inspiration, jump on jump on Instagram and look up Jared because there's some some amazing amazing scenery there that that will blow your mind no matter where you are around the world. Um, but you know. I am thinking from from my point of view, like you know, someone who lives in Melbourne, you know, you're in you're in the you know, down near Hobart and southernmost part of southernmost state of Australia. Is there is there particular places that you'd encourage bonsai enthusiasts to go with respect to um to view the trees in their natural form?
1: Yeah, yeah, certainly. Um so with regards to accessibility, which is one of the limiting factors, I guess, to being able to experience what's in the mountain, there's certain places that are easier than others to access. So anyone that's interested in, you know, ancient trees that wants to, to see some really good sites in Tasmania, you know, um, places like Mount Field National Park, um, is a great, a great location. If you drive up to, up to the, towards the summits, um, where the mouse and ski lifts and, and that sort of thing are, there's some really nice stuff. Have you, thought
0: about, have you thought about as part of your your business like doing tours and stuff like that for people to to see that sort of stuff because i 'm sure there 'd be a bucket load of people from from you know, anywhere that would travel to to your part of the world and and would put their hand up to see that I mean people travel around America to to see that sort of thing so I reckon that there'd be there 'd be a lot of people that would would jump at it for, um, for, for the chance to see those trees and maybe be you know, be educated along the way as well, not just look at them in their natural form, but be educated about them as well.
1: Yeah, yeah, it was something I've definitely definitely considered and I think this, this is a great idea to sort of be able to show people these trees in, in container culture, but also for them to see um, see what they look like in the wild. Um, oh. And it really gives context, um, so, you know, things like when you see a shimpaku juniper and it's this contorted crumb form, there's not Really anywhere else except for Tasmania in Australia, where you can see you can see something that is a rendition of that style. It kind of makes it all click. You go, oh, okay, yeah, that's that's exactly what um, this form is representing. These these Krumholtz forms in the mountains of ancient conifers. You know, you can you can look at them in books, but to study them or on the internet, you can look at photos of Krumholtz, But just to, to study them in in the flesh is Something else, and there's an air of antiquity that you can't get. Um, oh, definitely without
0: being mean that a feeling you get when you walk through walk through an old forest. You know, I don't think that can be replaced by anything really. And, and as you know, pe- people who are into bonsai obviously love trees. You know, little trees in pots, but um, you know, to to see them in the in the flesh like that, you know, not only is it going to be inspirational, it's going to be breathtaking as well. I'd assume.
1: Yeah, yeah, and it, some to see trees like this in Australia, it. And there are other places, definitely, Uh, you know. um, Inland of where I grew up in northern New South Wales, uh, in the border ranges for anyone in that area, you can get up into the border ranges, National Park, Lamington National Park, uh, Springbrook National Park, and there's a species of North Vegas that grows up in there and they're fairly ancient, you know. Mm. Um, Some of them exceed 2,000 years old, you know, so there are patches on the mainland. Yeah, but in Tasmania, there's... There's relic populations, little islands of really ancient Gondwanan flora, and that's that's where my sort of focus lies. Um, those areas are stunningly beautiful.
0: Now, while we're talking about all these these beautiful trees in in nature and in the wild, the uh, we can't we can't skip over the topic of yamadori. So, the collecting of, of wild grown trees, and um, you know, I have I have my own opinions on on yamadori, and I'm, I think a lot of people do around the world as well. Um, in Australia, we've got pretty strict laws um, which which restrict um, the legal collection of a lot of these things. But, you know, I just want to talk to you about Yamadori. Obviously, seeing these things in the wild and, and that desire to grab them, chuck them in the back of the car, take them home, put it into a pot, that's that's what drives a lot of people. You look through, you know, Europe and stuff like that where they maybe have a, a more relaxed approach to to collecting of these, these you know, century old trees and older um you know i'm not certain that i'd I'd necessarily agree with it but just what do you what do you think and, and and how do you go about collecting trees and that sort of stuff
1: yeah so um you know firstly if you're ever going to collect a tree you definitely need to have permission from the land tenure um but i mean when you're talking about ancient trees in australia there's not there's not a lot of them and the ecosystems that Can support ancient yamadori in this country are very rare and very delicate ecosystems. Um, And luckily, most of them are contained within national parks, so it's just no no touching. You know, we'll just look and enjoy the inspiration that's there. Um, And you know, there's there's no way to get around having an ancient athrotaxis in your collection because they grow almost exclusively in the national parks. So if someone has one, you know, it's quite obvious where. And it's the same. Yeah, it's the same for, you know, Gaisalma, you know, which is another beautiful, it's essentially a Shimbaki juniper that grows in the mountains here. Um, the Fagus the or Tanglefoot, the North Fagus gunnii, which is the deciduous beach, grows almost exclusively um, in the national park as well. So those trees, you know, obviously just directly off limits. Um, yeah, and the other thing is like Tasmania is so small, you know, if if it was, you know, 20 times the size and these ecosystems were more common and... Maybe it wouldn't be as bad a thing to, like, go and, and harvest a small, you know, number of plants. But because, because you know, the the patches are, are small and getting smaller every time there's a big fire. But that's one of the other tricky things is you hear a lot of people use fire as a justification to validate collecting. Um, it's easy to validate things, you know.
0: Um, yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah. Anyone, can, anyone can put an argument towards
1: whatever they want, really. It doesn't yeah. look right. That's exactly right, yeah. So the way the way I go about things is um, I always make sure that I – so I do collect trees um, and, well, I obviously never collect from the national park. That's like rule number one. Um, but I also try to collect predominantly um, from fire-impacted ecosystems. Mm-hmm. Uh, so um, a lot of the ecosystems where there's ancient material, they're fire intolerant. Um, so, they're very old ecosystems, and only you know that is a climax community of plants. Um, so, that's one of the things to look for is you know, um, in Tasmania, anyways, it makes it seems to make it a bit more ethical. But I always ensure that I get my permits for the yep. locations that I will collect from. Mm-hmm. Um, and the land here I collect from is what's deemed as permanent t- timber production zone land. Um, so in Tasmania, there's a huge native forest logging industry. Um, and, you know, again, you can have your own personal opinions on that. I know where I sit on the issue. Um, but, you know, at the same time, we do need resources. Everyone has, I know, I can see some timber benches sitting behind you, you know, so there's a there's demand for <laughs> timber, you know. Um, yeah, and it, it has to come from somewhere. And so there's, in Tasmania, there's a lot of forest and a lot of the timber Um, is extracted at least like it doesn't seem like there's as much there was a huge wood chipping industry in Tasmania for a while that's it's really slowed down um thankfully um but nonetheless there's a there's a huge tenure that's covered by this permanent timber production zone land um and you can get a permit to collect from from that land and that land is used essentially by the government for resource extraction um so this, this is the land that I use as my collecting areas, um, mm-hmm. yeah. And so it's collected, it,
0: collected legally and and safely and ethically, basically.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, I mean, that's what we aim to do um, mm-hmm. when we collect plants. Um, and then, but I also don't collect a huge number of, of trees each season. Um, I sort of aim for quality over quantity. Um, yeah. And I've had you know, other collectors sort of scoff at the numbers of trees I collect, they say, oh, how many trees do you collect in a day when you go out? And it's like, oh, maybe one. <laughs> Sometimes I can get four trees out on a, on a big mission of a day, you know. Um, so, yeah, because, you know, you're not using a machine. You're walking walking into the forest essentially um, with a frame. So, um, so I use a frame that you would use for hunting deer or elk in the mountains. Um and then, you know, find a tree. And it can be quite difficult to find a good tree. Um, you know, I've
0: had this because... conversation. I've had this conversation with people before that, you know, you you can dig anything you want. A couple of things you need to to be mindful of are: will it survive the digging process? And we, you know, will it? And will it be something that you'll want to look at in ten, twenty years time, or will it just be another stick in a pot that you've? You've dug because it's just there to be able to be dig to be dug in the first place, and I think that you've got a. It's like like anything with bonsai. There's got to be something special, something a special characteristic before you go through this entire process. You know, walking for a whole day to get to a site to potentially dig a tree that you know you, you wouldn't go through all that that heartache and all that effort if when you got it home it was dead in two weeks' time and in the green bin. Or on the fire, and and then if it survives, if you look at it and go, well, it's a piece of rubbish that really is not going to do anything for me. It's never going to make a, a good quality bonsai. I don't know why you'd go through the process of removing the tree in the first place.
1: Yeah, I completely agree. Yeah, so I mean, that's another thing is that you only want to collect something that has you know something unique about it that you wouldn't mm. be able to grow yourself. Exactly. Yeah. You just grow it. Why? Why not? You know. And and going back to that point about not collecting from the national park, and there being species where. You know they're ideal for bonsai, but you can't collect them. Those are the species which I put the time and effort into growing from seed or from cutting. So, yeah, collecting is a small part of what we do, um, but we also are growing a huge amount of um, you know the native conifers. um, Sort of dabbling with the phagus. it's a it's a bit of a beast. It sounds like um, it certainly sounds like you're going to be a
0: uh, a definite permanent part of the Australian bonsai. Ones I've seen because the great part about Tasmania, well, not the great part, sorry, one of the, one of the, 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 the issues with Tasmania is you can ship trees out of a Tasmania, you just can't ship stock into Tasmania. So, yeah. so when we've got people on the mainland like myself or other enthusiasts that, that are looking for, for, um, you know, native, native stock, we can, we can source it through you or we can, we can buy it through you, get it shipped over here from you. But, this, this is one thing I want to talk to you about is we can't, you know, you can't get stock from the mainland and ship it across. So you're doing a lot of work with all these natives and stuff like that, but that sounds like it's a really logical, smart thing to do because you've got very limited access to exotics and that sort of thing over there anyway.
1: Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's 100% correct. The mainland, um, buyers drain Tasmania of a lot of the best stock. Um, yep. a lot of the exotic trees of high quality, um, getting and have already been exported from Tasmania. Um so we're back to, you know, starting again with a lot of them, you know, growing. There's a few growers around that have, you know, um held collections of high quality trees. Um a surprising number actually for such a small population. You know, I think there's five hundred thousand people in, in Tasmania and there's a lot of bonsai growers here.
0: It's fantastic. It's the um it's the fresh air down there, mate. The yeah. Crisp crisp cold air that, that clears the brain and makes people want to spend more time with trees.
1: Yeah, yeah, that's it. Um but you know there is some there's some hidden gems still left here and um you know recently I've acquired a couple of really nice sort of um traditional or exotic exotic species just to have just to have a small gallery of, you know, a couple of pines, a couple of maples for people that visit the nursery um you know that want to see that high quality traditional bonsai because you know still undoubtedly the, the Japanese bonsai or you know Taiwanese bonsai or you know, wherever you're looking to these pillars of bonsai they're still well they're number one in the world for quality undoubtedly um
0: yeah that's good for i suppose for when you have when you have students or when people come and visit your garden too to know that there's going to be a broad range too of of, of different species that you work on it's, it's also i find myself um it's, it's really important to have a wide range of stock just so it keeps you you fresh and 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 on point i suppose with Looking after trees, I find that when you know I'm about to get into black pine season here in Melbourne, and I know that by the end of end of um, June, you know I can I can pluck needles in my sleep and wire trees, and it's you know it's not a not a big deal. But then I transition into something else, and I've got to start the ball rolling again and get going with it. So that diversity of species from from you as a professional's point of view is, is really good too to keep you, you nimble and and when people do do want advice or, or help or training or anything like that that you're
1: you're ready to go with it because you've got those species in your garden as well yeah yeah it's, it's good not to be seen as a one-trick pony you know definitely <laughs>
0: And do you have like I got I got asked this the other day? Um, do you have species envy because you do have restricted access to it there? And you know we've, we're going to talk about um, you, your time up in Canberra recently, and and you know when you get on the mainland and you, or you you know you get on Instagram or whatever, you can see definitely different species. Do you have one particular species envy that you you'd sort of wish you had, but you don't have down there?
1: No. <laughs> yeah, I mean, <laughs> yes and no. I mean, do. Like, I think the good thing about being in a cold climate is you can still grow trees from the warm climate, like tropical and subtropical trees with the use of a greenhouse. So yep. being down here, and also that's the kind of thing that you could actually get into Tasmania, I think, quite easily. There, you know, I've got a few clients that have recently bought their collections into Tasmania, so I'm starting to find maybe that it might be possible in the future to bring things in. But, I, you know, I really love, um, you know, Japanese beach. There's not a lot of those... Yeah, Of high quality down here. Um and you know, I see some of the material that's coming out of uh, you know, like Leon's row beds and, and and places like, you know, on that are growing exceptional quality stock and you think, geez that'd be nice to just to acquire a few of those pieces and work them and sell them or through the nursery, you know, that sort of thing. Yep. Um, but I guess I don't have species envy because um, a lot of the trees that I'm most interested in grow exclusively here and are endemic to Tasmania. So. Yeah.
0: Hence the reason why you set up down there, mate. Coming yeah. yeah. back to the mainland, you set up down there because it's perfect for you, which is yeah. awesome. It's great. It's great to have, you know, I think, I think people, uh, you know, if, you, if you've got a map of Australia out as a as a bonsai enthusiast, you could pretty much travel around Australia and, and drop into a lot of different bonsai professionals. Um, personal, personal setups or their nurseries and that sort of thing, and you'd have a great, um, a great holiday with it too. And you'd see diversity of, of styling and species and all that sort of stuff.
1: So it's it's awesome. Yeah, I think diversity is is so important in in the bonzo realm. You know, you find that um, based on based on Tassie and
0: um, you know the the cold climate and stuff like that. Do you have particular pest and disease issues that you encounter more frequently or do you find that there's there's less impact down there with, with pest and disease because it's, you know, depending on the species, obviously, and, you know, regimes for, for spraying and maintenance and all that sort of stuff, you know, do you find that you, you trip across something consistently, like fungal disease?
1: Probably a higher, like sooty mould we have a big issue with in this sort of um, climate. Um, but, I mean, that's a secondary issue if that comes, yeah. you know, from poor pest management. Um, but... I find a lot of the time um, I have a lot of issues with eucalyptus because um, we are sort of surrounded by large eutes. So it seems like um, a lot of the pests that they have rained down onto the smaller eucalypts. Um, and that seems to be a bit of an issue, but I, don't, I wouldn't say that we have any um, any more issue than anyone else with regards to to pests and, and fungal issues. Uh, maybe there maybe could be slightly higher fungal loading here potentially, but there's not a a huge nursery trade down here. And also because of the quarantine coming into Tasmania, it's it's quite good. We don't seem to have huge loadings of, you know, harmful, harmful fungal um, spores, you know, so we don't have myrtle rust. Um, Well, I mean, it's here in very small amounts. Um,
0: But it's managed.
1: Yeah, it's it's managed, you know, and, um, you know, things like Phytophthora sort of kept under control to, to, a, to an extent. Um, so, you know, it's, it's there, but, um, I don't think we have anything further and, you know, good management of the issues. You know, I, I tried for the last few seasons to use quite an organic approach to pest control. Um, yeah, that go. yeah, not too well, <laughs> 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 you know, like, um, I feel like you're playing catch up a lot of the time. Yeah, um, so I've just moved to, you know, because the quality of the trees is, it's just too yeah. it's just too risky so i've just moved to systemic insecticide um and you know i try to avoid my impact on the environment by so i'm using like um a pelletized systemic that's taken up um through the root system you put it in into the soil um and sort of like a slow release, um, so that avoids spraying. Um, but I mean, if I was to spray, I would make sure that I do it early in the morning before the bees are up and about, and wouldn't spray anything that's flowering, you know, all those sorts of things. And you know, some, I would never broadcast spray. You know, um, no, no. And, um, I've I've liked this pelletized, um, pelletized insecticide because you know it seems like it's a very topical. Is it
0: um? Is it readily available? The pelletized thing Or is it? Is it something you can buy like a, a an enthusiast could buy at their local hardware
1: store? Yeah. I'm just trying to think of the chemical name. It's like in that, it's the same chemical that's in Confidor essentially, and you can well, you can't buy it at the hardware store, but you can buy it online. Um, yep. you know, um, and I've found I wouldn't know the exact product, but there's a few of them out there um yep. that do yeah. the, the same thing. While
0: we're, while we're talking about this too, before I get asked all the questions um, further down the track, my approach with, with spraying and, and, and maintenance on the trees is, um, which, I've, which I've said before and I make it pretty clear with every, everybody, is that it's always the health of the tree that's my first and, and foremost um, concern. And uh, I find that having healthy, strong trees, the natural defences they've got, are, are often more than enough to, to manage it. But I'm always on the front foot with my spraying to make sure that my trees stay at peak condition. And priority one is always um, always the health of the tree and and its' and its maintenance it's ongoing maintenance. so if I find that I've got pests and disease or pests on there, like you know aphids or whatever it is, then um, I'll treat those with with something a, a contact spray then then move on to try and identify what the what the actual root cause of the problem is, which is often um, not being repotted. First and foremost, because a tree can't get nutrients, and it can't build its strength, and it's becoming, you know, a bit pot bound, and and that normally is where most most of my issues stem from. So, um, you know, I think what what Jared's doing with his systemic is via via pellet form is a is a brilliant idea, as um, as far as localising the this, the uh, damage to to the natural um, natural insects around. It's uh, a byproduct normally of, of sprays like Comfortor that that sort of have a, a high um a high impact on, on the bee population. So doing it that way, mate, it's pretty um it's pretty smart. Now listen, um what if you could what would be the best piece of advice that you would give someone? So so someone says to you, what what one thing would you tell me that will change my bonsai life? What would that be?
1: Seek out a good teacher.
0: Ah there you go. Yeah yeah true I agree with that. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Yeah and um do whatever it is that you're most passionate about. You know, grow the species that you want to grow, and um, you know, if you want to experiment, um, explore, and experiment, um, you know, I think it's it's good to approach it um, with a creative mind um, and not approach it as a, a mimicry of other people's work. I think it's great, great to sort of um, forge your own path you know to an extent you know you need to you need to know the basics before you go off the path um but yeah
0: there's always horticultural um
1: foundations that we all have to
0: abide by regardless so that's that's what, one thing that i push quite heavily is that you can you can design a tree to look how you want but but horticulturally your eyes going to have the same constraints as everyone else around the world that's doing bonsai you know so so you can make the tree look how you want whether it stays alive in that format um, or in that form is another thing, because the horticulture is always going to dominate and and overrule whatever design features you put onto a onto a tree. But yeah, I agree. I, I think you know, thinking about it, it wasn't wasn't going to be my answer. What would be the number one thing I'd, I'd tell people? Mine would be patience. It would be just draw breath. And don't keep don't keep um, chasing that that elusive perfect bonsai. Just to draw breath and sit back and enjoy the ride along the way. Because the further along you get, the the more you enjoy the slower times with with the trees. But you know, I think getting a, getting a good teacher is is ideal, and sticking with them, I think, is the um, the second part to that. Now, for your own personal bonsai life, if there was one thing that you could change, what would it be?
1: That's a challenging question. Mm. Um, well, I'd love a studio. At the moment, I'm still working out of the greenhouse, um, and the studio is in the process of being built. So, yep. um, yeah, definitely, definitely. Once the the, uh, the studio is built, I think that's going to be a huge game changer. Um, because working in the greenhouse through summer is just it's not it's not possible. Um, so, you know, you can, I can work in the house, but it's not the same. You know, um, so I, I need that space. To function at, you know, the level I want to be functioning at, um, you know, and to, and to teach display, which I think is like one of those final pillars of bonsai art, you know, is that display. Um, but also, like, you know, if if I'm being wishful, I'd love for I'd love for the fagus, the only deciduous tree, to be just a smidge easier to grow. Maybe have a stronger root system on it, or I don't know. Maybe for someone to Tell me that little secret spice that it needs to to grow flawlessly, um, or them for there to be an abundant supply of them, you know. <laughs> but yeah, um, uh, it's good. Um, What's, And and then going
0: back to your, your studio and stuff like that, that's something that I think everyone that's listening to, you know, this 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 podcast has been recorded in in May 2021, and I think that. Hopefully, someone listens to this, you know, five, ten years down the track, and then suddenly visits and has a look at your your, your property. Because I've been there myself, and and the development that you're doing and the work that you're doing on it is is something which is going to draw a lot of visitors to that to that area, and also a lot of local people that will become, you know, long term uh, long term invested into your approach to to Bonzo. That's what I think is is something that I'd like to push myself. Is having having known you now for a little while. Knowing your approach, your consistency of dealing with with certain species, and and your your, your general um, love and admiration for for the wilderness is is something which is portrayed and pushed, and it's it's such a such a great thing for us to have in the Australian bonsai community, mate, that you're to be commended for it. And I think that the work that you're putting in to your to your garden and to the 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 time that you're putting into young stock now that, you know, 10, 15, 20 years down the track or even two years down the track is going to be something which um, all of Australia is going to benefit from because, you know, it's going to be hard for you to lock the borders and, and stop shipping stuff out of there because once the word gets out and once people start seeing what you're doing and, and producing and stuff like that, I'm sure people on the mainland are going to start tripping over themselves to try and get hold of it, knowing that it's, it's you know, it's, it's produced or, man, or or grown you know in such a way that 's not damaging the environment uh, it 's not being ripped out of you know out of national parks and stuff like that, so that clear conscious of purchase is going to be there with with a lot of stuff that you 've done and knowing that you 've done it the right way too you know there 's a lot of people that that throw something in a pot. That maybe um, maybe shouldn't or, or don't look after it to a point where when the then the the, the fresh bonsai enthusiast gets hold of it that it can stay alive long term. Whereas you know you do the hard yards first, so when someone does take it away, it's a it's a tree that's going to outlast them. And that's 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 brilliant, I reckon. Well, thank you, I appreciate no. it. Now we um we caught up in Canberra in uh, March? Was yeah. It March yeah yeah March um, yeah so we, we caught up and we did did something up there at the the National Collection um, it was called Bonsai Reshaped if anyone wants to search through for it you might see some some photos or videos or something like that on on Instagram or Facebook or, or whatever um, so what did what did you get out of that well firstly
1: it was um it was the first time I'd actually been able to make it to the national collection, which, um, ashamedly, uh, it's sort of, so it's a bit of a pilgrimage for me. Mm. Um, that was fantastic you know, um, to see a collection of some of the best trees from around Australia in one place. Um, and in such good condition as well, Lee and Sam do a fantastic job of, of maintaining up, right? the collection. Um, but also the space, it's a beautiful space to present bonsai, in. Mm. um, so that was, that was fantastic to, to see that, um, and I got to see some trees from familiar names, um, and some of the best trees um, from those people. Um, so that that was that was great. Um, uh, but also to work, work alongside yourself and Khan, um, that was that was pretty. Um, that was I
0: felt pretty honored, cool, was it? Actually.
1: Yeah, I really felt honoured to be invited up there um, for the event. Um, so that was great, and it was it was really great to share some of the the, the Tasmanian flora and and to see uh, Australian native plants being worked. You know, on the on the main stage. Um, mm. me yeah, was,
0: first and foremost it was great, I reckon. That 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 native angle on it was um was fantastic.
1: Yeah, so that was that was really good. And I, I do love that as a trajectory for for Australians. I, you know, obviously I love exotic plants equally. Um, well maybe not quite. I do have a slight bias towards native plants. Um, (laughs) yeah. Um, so it was great to see, you know, recognition, um, because there has been a lot of people, um, trailblazing, you know, there's Derek from Western Australia and Will Fletcher down here. And, you know, there's a number of other people across the country that have been sort of, um, working away quietly for a, a lot of years, um, you know, and so it's, it's nice to see you know native plants um, given given you know stage.
0: G- recognition.
1: Yeah, yeah.
0: Yeah. So on that on that point, then, like you know, um, we it was talking about um, the, there was three of us on stage at one time, which is the first time I've done that, which was great because they they picked the three different you, myself, and 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 um, for the different. Um, styling approaches that we have with our with our trees, which was awesome, and I think you know having native stock styled differently or styled the way that we'd you know we'd we'd like to have in our collection was was great. But where do you see Australian? Not, I'm not talking native bonsai, but where do you see bonsai in Australia heading in the next five ten years? Like what direction or where do you see us going as a community?
1: It seems like we have a lot of momentum at the moment. Sure um, do. And I feel like the focus is moving towards quality. Um, yep. I think for a lot of years there was a focus on big chunks, um, <laughs> you know, at the um, at the expense of quality. And, and this is an opinion, um, but you know, a big chunk is is one thing, um, and it's to, to be admired in its own right. Um, but I think a push to something maybe. Uh, something a bit more subtle, you know, focusing on branch refinement, finally, you know, we've, we've, we've grown trunks finally, and now we're moving towards refinement. And that, for me, that's really exciting because, you know, I mentioned earlier, I think display is that final pillar and, you know, you look back at early Japanese bonsai where we're sitting right now, not dissimilar to where they were, you know, in you know in the sixties or mm-hmm. maybe a little bit earlier than that. So I think as the time, you know, starts to, starts to overlay onto the trees with, you know, through the right care. Um, The Bonsai Open on the Central Coast I think will become hopefully something quite interesting, Um, you know, because we do need these exhibitions to sort of, you know, a bit of a competitive nature to push the quality higher and higher. Definitely Um,
0: something to aim for, something to, a target to to try and aspire to.
1: Yeah, that's that's it. So, you know, like people like yourself and Quinton around your area have, you know, and Marcella have excellent quality trees and you, you give people something to aspire to and, you know, when you put those, it's almost a challenge to people to, you know, to raise, raise the standard when, when you're seeing trees of that caliber, mm-hmm. you know, put onto, onto the show table. Um, yeah. So I think, I think we're just going to see, and also that a lot of these, uh, trees that people have been working on are finally, you know, trees that have been grown from scratch in Australia. We've, we've grown a lot of our material from scratch and it's finally starting mm-hmm. to to that, to bear the fruits of that labor. So, I think the refinement of those pieces is really going to bring bring bonsai culture in Australia, you know, to to a bit of a peak hopefully hopefully soon, a sustained peak, I'd assume. Yeah. <laughs>
0: I think that where we're, where we're accelerating now, my, my opinion on it is that um, going back again to the horticultural stuff, that we're focusing more on that and we're, we're a lot smarter now and educated than what we used to be. Um, and and we're we're focusing more on well, I I personally myself, I focus far more on on the roots of the tree as opposed to the trunk of the tree. Uh, and and I, I, I'm a great believer that if you can if you can work out the base of the tree and get the get the the foundation correct on that tree via its roots with the, the mediums that we use and and fertilising and, and all that sort of stuff and positioning and stuff like that, then the rest of the tree can develop quite quickly you know you can you know within a, a five-year period not not a deciduous tree of course but but sort of a, a pine or something like that within five-year period with a good foundation you can develop quite quickly where you get to so 5, 10, 15, 20 years time like those trees are, are going to be some of the best in the world if they're not if they're not they're already for some of the some of the people that have got collections that you mentioned around the place so I think I believe that we're we're accelerating faster now because we've got an open air of, of information sharing between people like you and I, um, and other other professionals around Australia too do the same thing, and we've got this um, this sort of internal network of people where we're sort of we're passing on as much information through the social media platforms as you possibly can. And I know contactability for myself, you know, the, the phone runs hot with text messages from people that have literally done a course yesterday with me to today. They've been out and purchased something and they're, they're wanting their their confidence built up and sort of to say, hey, look, what do you think? And, you know, having having access to that, I know from my point of view, if, you know, going back, I don't know, 20, 30 years, whatever it is, um, if I had access to someone like me on the other end of the phone or, so, or someone like you getting a text and saying, hey, look, it'll be okay and have you thought about this or don't do that, wait, you know, th- that sort of thing is where... People stay in bonsai and that's where bonsai community starts to grow and what's good for bonsai is good for all of us. The more people are in bonsai, the better it is for everybody because the more money gets thrown at it from you know, like the national collection up in Canberra. That's that's such a such a visionary thing to to have done in Australia that it's brilliant. And I hope it I hope it grows massively because it deserves it.
1: Yeah. And it's it's a great facility for um for maintaining our treasures, you know. I see them as you know, these treasures of the art that are created, you know, by you know, people throughout time, and to, mm. to have somewhere safe for those to land, that it just disappear or go to a collection of someone that can afford them, but yeah, um, them after them. the ability to um, to pick them up to the standard that they that they need. Um, and you talked about.
0: You talked about the trees getting to a, to a level with the, the show up in Central Coast. I think that the National Collection is something that everyone, and I've said it before, that, that people should aspire to get one of their trees at least into that collection during their lifetime in bonsai because that's, um, I mean, it's different, you know, it comes out of Tassie, it, it can't return to Tassie, but, um, you know, and so is Western Australia, but really the the target should be that you've got something good enough and high enough level that it can get into that that collection for a for a period of time, you know, one, two years, whatever they decide to keep it for. But I think if we had that sort of a target ongoing, then then that'd be that'd be awesome for our bonsai community because then everywhere starts to get better and better and starts to starts to develop. And like I said, the better our shows become, the more people that get interested in bonsai, the more people get interested in bonsai, the bigger our community becomes.
1: Yeah. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. So now
0: you're, um, you're a man in demand. Um, how do people get in touch with you, mate? So you've got someone on the mainland who wants to talk to you about coming down and doing, you know, visiting your nursery, acquiring stock, doing a, an intensive training with you, or, or something like that. How do people, how's it best for people to get in touch with you?
1: Uh, so through my website, it's generally the best best way to get in contact with me or through Facebook or Instagram. Those are also quite easy, um, contact. Um, after that via phone is always, it's always the best. Um, so give us the details. Yeah. What's, um, the, what's website? the website? So www.montainbonsai.com, um, or Montain is the handle on Instagram, uh, same as on Facebook. Um, so you can look that up and yeah, if you want to get in contact with me and you're chasing something, um, you know um, Tasmanian native plant or you know want some advice or information or anything or you want to come visit the nursery yeah don't hesitate to contact me because you know we love showing people what we're working on here Um, you know there's no point creating bonsai unless you get to share it with you know with people that are going to appreciate it
0: and the cool part is that you can—I um, know you've done it for me—but you can organise the shipping of trees over to the mainland too. If if someone gets a uh, gets a sparkle in their eye about one of your trees, then then that can be coordinated as well. So you've got the you've got the the door to door service available.
1: Yeah. yeah, we're always happy to ship. Um, generally, it's easiest to, um, to capital cities, but um, I mean, if you if there's a will. Yeah, generally find a way. Yep.
0: <laughs> yeah, definitely, yeah. I can tell you, mate, you're one of the nice blokes in bonsai around the world. So, um, thanks for thanks for coming online today with us for the podcast and and it's uh, it's lovely to chat. And I'm sure there'll be plenty more chats coming up with you down the track, mate. So, um, so thank you very much.
1: Oh, it's a pleasure as always, Scott. I can't wait to catch up with you again in the flesh.
0: Yeah, sounds good, mate. We'll have that beer very soon. Yeah, look forward to it. All right, see
1: you, mate. See you, mate.
0: How good was that? All right, so if you want to get in touch with Jared, it's uh, just to go over it again, it's Montane Bonsai, M O N T A N E Bonsai. So his website is montanebonsai.com, or he can be emailed on Bailey one at gmail.com. So J A R R Y D B A I L E Y 1 at gmail.com. Or I tell you what, you can just reach out to me, Scott at via the website bonsomatsu.com, via Instagram, via Facebook, anywhere you normally get in touch with me, and I can uh, I can put you in direct contact with with Jared. So it's a busy time now for uh, for us as we head into the latter part of, of May and get towards the dormancy period for our trees. So for me, I'm about to get into a lot of the black pines and, and pines in general with a nice clean-up and styling. It's a really exciting time of year. It's when I get to make my trees look the best they possibly can. So there's going to be another podcast coming coming pretty soon. And you never know, it may develop into a bit of YouTube footage and that sort of stuff as well. So stick around, enjoy. Um, thank you for, for tuning in. Thank you for listening as always. And I'll look forward to catching you next time. Until then, happy bonsai.